Circle Podcast on Hacker Public Radio. In this episode, Becky Hawk barefoot into cyberspace. Hello world, and welcome to the Full Circle Podcast on Hacker Public Radio. This episode consists of an interview with journalist and author Becky Hogg. Her book, Barefoot into Cyberspace, Adventures in Search of Techno-Utopia, came out last year around the time of the extradition case surrounding WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange. The book explores modern technology and society through activism and journalism, covering the hacker counterculture from Stolman and Lessig, the Chaos Club, through to WikiLeaks' Julian Assange and Rock Gongrip. The Full Circle Podcast is the companion to Full Circle Magazine, the independent magazine for the Ubuntu community. Find us at fullcirclemagazine.org forward slash podcast. So, so I, I thought, where's the best place to interview uh, Rob? And I thought, well, why don't I go to the Chaos uh, Communications Congress, which is an event that takes place at uh, at the end of the year, the day after Boxing Day uh, in Berlin. You say that I felt that was an uncomfortable experience. Well, maybe. I mean, it certainly wasn't somewhere where I felt like I particularly fitted in. But everyone there was really, really friendly. And I think there's maybe a misconception about hackers, that they're unfriendly people. And certainly the people I met at the Chaos Communications uh, Congress were really, really friendly, really open, and actually really interested in talking about some of the stuff they were doing, messing about with code, creating stuff, seeing how stuff worked, putting it apart, putting it back together again. There was this thing where if you came, as I did, accredited with the press, for a start, and this was kind of a new thing for me as a journalist, you actually had to pay to go there. I mean, they weren't going to give you a freebie just because you said you were a journalist, you know, so what? Everyone was there doing something useful. Um, But you also had to tell everybody that you were a journalist. That was one of the rules, um, because there were certain parts of the Congress which they preferred to keep under wraps or not to to be there in the news. Having said that, some of the major things, like, for example, the first year I went, they cracked. They then, uh, this guy called, um, yep, Carsten Noll, announced that he and he and colleagues had cracked the GSM standard. But that was headline news around the world. That wasn't something they were trying to keep under wraps. But then there was a kind of basement area where no photos at all were allowed, which was basically all the different hacking clubs working on all sorts of things, really. A lot of which I didn't quite understand, but um, all looked really interesting. So, Rob, you you interviewed, and and he kind of pops up as a a sort of continuous figure all the way through to the end of the book and uh, that's right, that's sounds right. like a pretty uh, a pretty wise character to have there as your um, your jedi mentor if if you like yeah he's a great guy really great guy and um, you probably haven't seen this because i think you've read the html version is that right or the epub version i've got the epub version yeah so the the versions that you pay for <clears throat> have illustrations based around john daniel's illustrations for alice's adventures in wonderland and rop in those illustrations is the white rabbit he's got <laughs> <laughs> follow down the rabbit hole and uh, and is there throughout and yeah actually I mean of course it was 2009 when I when I started out to interview Rob what I didn't know is that he was going to become involved in WikiLeaks 
and I, I had no idea that WikiLeaks was even going to kick off the way it obviously did in 2010. And that provided just the most amazing narrative thrust for what was otherwise going to be, you know, a book about ideas and about people. Um, so that really brought the book together and Rop being a key figure in that was really important. And he was so supportive of the project. You know, I, 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 I interviewed him again the following December at his house in Amsterdam. He'd read the first draft of the book by then and he was just like, you've got to get this out there. This is great. I love it. And and on the basis of that, you know, did a second interview and, and really kind of came forward. And actually the book ends with him talking, not with me talking. And I, I really like that. Mm. And and at one point he's invited you to join in as as part of WikiLeaks, and you you come across as a bit of a reluctant activist, and you step back. Yeah, so that's I was really uncertain about whether to include that in the book because it's it's kind of a non-story. Becky Hogg doesn't get involved in WikiLeaks. <laughs> Here's the story of how I didn't get involved in WikiLeaks. But yeah, sure. So he contacted me from Reykjavik when they were all making the collateral murder video there that they would later air at the Washington Press Club um, in April. And I guess he contacted me first around February and then again in March. And um, yeah, I was really reluctant to get involved. I was reluctant for quite a few reasons. I was working, I guess, was the first thing, but that's really just an excuse. I kind of got a bit burnt out, I think, when I was working as an activist at the Open Rights Group. I was really unsure of myself at that time and unsure of the kind of values behind a lot of what I had fought for at the Open Rights Group. Or not not unsure of their values, I guess, but unsure of... My my own techno-utopianism had become kind of bruised and blunted by knocking up against the kind of cold, hard services of the institutions of the old world. And I had been sickened by politics a, a little bit. And so I was, yeah, I was reluctant to get involved in another activist project. And I was also reluctant to get involved in a project that had was going to have... I, I mean, having seen WikiLeaks speak at the 2009 um, conference... I had a lot. I had a massive load of respect for what they were doing, but I also didn't feel like I was brave enough to get involved. And every single person—not every single person—but there are five people now who it appears are being investigated by the U.S. Department of State because Twitter. I don't know if you saw that story, but Twitter was subpoenaed by the. In fact, it was the Department of Justice. Sorry, Twitter yeah. was subpoenaed by the DOJ for the communications records of five of the people that were working on that video in Reykjavik at that time. And yeah, had I said yes, I would have probably been person number. Six. Mm-hmm. Rop is certainly involved in that at the moment. So is a guy called Jake Applebaum. So is Daniel Domscheit-Berg, Julian Assange, and um, Bridget Jonstottir, who's an Icelandic politician. So yeah, I mean, this wasn't playtime anymore. This wasn't nice political campaigning. This was serious activism. And yeah, I just didn't have the balls for it. Can I say balls on your show? I, I yes. Compared to some of the things I have to bleep out, I think that's fine. <laughs> I just didn't have the balls for it. Even now, I I feel like I made the right decision. Although certainly, I would be in a very different position now. I think if I if I had gone. I think so. Yes, you wouldn't have uh, too much trouble selling a few more books. I dare say. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I tell you what. In November, when I had the first draft. It was right around the time when everything was kicking off and mm. I was there thinking, wow, you know, this book that I've just written, this book is going to get, you know, a serious book deal at this point because everyone is spending stupid money on books about WikiLeaks. And um, and in the end, that didn't happen at all. Mm. A, a, a few people, Assange being, you know, the headline one, getting a million pound book deal, but also Heather Brook, who did go out to Reykjavik and, as a journalist to interview those guys and then got more heavily involved. Daniel. 
Daniel Domscheit-Berg, uh, the guy who was uh, Julian's colleague for a lot of 2010, they, they, they got some stupendous book deals. And I think I haven't read um, the Guardian book, but I've read Daniel's book. I think it's great. I'm looking forward to reading Heather's book. I'm skeptical as to whether Julian's book will ever appear. Um, but uh, yeah, so as it goes, I didn't get a single book deal. It really colored the market. And actually, I'm cool with that because I think in a way, this book, it is kind of part adventure story part self-reflection i've had really great feedback from people who've read it about how readable and how accessible it is and i don't think i think a major publishing house would have wanted to glamorize it or would have wanted it to be more polemical and that's absolutely what i didn't want because i think that these ideas are so amorphous i don't think anyone has really nailed down what exactly the future looks like um enabled by network digital technology and i just think there are too many books in the market that say this is what it's going to happen. And you know that you know the kind of books I mean, they all have like colorful network cables on them or else like digits uh, green and black, green on black. And they, they say yeah. things like the internet is going to kill us or the internet is going to free us. And, um, and I, I just wanted to get beyond that kind of discourse and just share how confused I was and, and, and yet still how engaged I was in this subject. I think we're all, all slightly skeptical about the idea of techno-utopia. But so from your point of view, yeah, what 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 are a few what are a few headline points? I mean, what where where is it going to take us? There's I, I can see an awful lot of benefits and disbenefits, even just looking from my my little side vantage point. Well, the thing that I'm most interested in at the moment is the idea that we thought that the internet and the web was a disintermediating space, was a space by which I mean was a space that put us directly in touch with each other. We call it a many-to-many communications environment. And attached to our thrill around that idea is the idea that institutions, intermediaries of the world which came before, be they multi-globalized uh, media, media corporations, be they government, be they, be they you know, advertising companies, whatever, large global corporations, they would somehow be circumvented with this new technology, we'd, we would all be in touch with one another and that would be some kind of glorious utopian thing. Now, you can question that in two ways. You can say, well, actually, will that be some kind of glorious utopian thing or will it be a cacophony, chaos, um, that sort of thing? That's, that I find interesting, but I don't, I, you know, I don't feel qualified um, to talk about that so much. I'm not a sociologist. Or the other way you can talk about it is, well, actually, is that going to happen? Because you see, you've seen over the past four or five years, the web utterly consolidate around a few platforms and a few companies, the biggest one, of course, being Google, but also, I mean, web hosting companies like Rackspace, you know, who are now hosting, you know, a significant percentage of websites and a significant percentage of web traffic is, is resolving just to their servers. Um, Google, I think, accounts for 6% of all web traffic now, which is a huge huge percentage um and and it's only going to get bigger and one of my favorite interviews in the book is where i speak to a guy called ethan zuckerman who works out of the berkman center for internet and society and he says you know nobody saw this coming but it's sort of like the high street what's happened to the british high street Mm -hmm. over the last 20 years has happened to the web in one year and why the hell has this happened why now is facebook the web why is google the web and what does this mean for things like free speech and privacy and does this actually make the virtual world a more constrained environment than the real world Um, so that's that's my, my most interesting take home from the book for sure and i'm still thinking about that i'm still interested in that because i think that 
the dominance now that major corporations have in this space coupled with the idea that we think of it as a space a space where we have rights and a space where we you know have a space we have hopes for you know to liberate not just people in Tunisia or Egypt or wherever they're having revolutions but here in 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 the west as well where we're perhaps suffering from well i mean we're speaking, of course, in the week where there are riots all over the streets. The, w- the world is looking like a, an increasingly scary place. But yeah, so, so how does the fact that corporations now dominate a place we thought would, would liberate us, how, what does that mean for regulation? You know, after, after the, I don't know if I'm going too much into this now, but after the Second World War, we conceived of a human rights framework that would guarantee you know, a, a measure of liberty and freedom for all. What does the human rights framework for the digital age look like, given the political and economic con- conditions of, of now, of when we might write it? Because the fact that corporations are governing this space rather than governments, I think is, is a really, w- w- would really colour the answer to that question. Does that mm. make sense? It does, yeah, it does. And, and you've, you've kind of reframed one of, the, one of the, 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 the questions that I was going to ask. Because I hate it when people do that. Oh, the, I'm so sorry. The, <laughs> that's fine. The, the, what, what struck me is that, yes, we, 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 we all had that expectation that the internet was going to set us free and disintermediate all these old institutions. Unfortunately, nobody's told the old institutions that, and they keep getting in the way as long, uh, uh, alongside the money men. Because yeah. they've got money, they keep buying their way back into the spaces that we keep trying to throw them out of. And I don't know, I don't know if anybody's yet found the answer to that one. Yeah, it's um, kind of it's... interesting that you would call it the, the buying their way back in. Because what exactly are they buying? Like the projects that, you know, the, the, I, I, projects is a really belittling world. But stuff like Linux or Wikipedia or Apache or, you know, stuff that's been built in a kind of floss model that that's the kind of inspiring stuff that's the stuff that makes you think hey we can get by without the institution and yet it's not the stuff that garners mass adoption and i mm. guess people within the floss community say that's well we don't have the marketing or we don't have the ui design we don't have the the nice bells and whistles that get the you know the little people interested maybe i mean that's that's the characterization that's a kind of crass characterization of that view and our, our we, we imagine that only money can buy us those things i think which is interesting, and I don't know, I read that into your question a little bit, but I didn't well, let you finish answering sorry. <laughs> I don't know, maybe, maybe, that, maybe that is the answer. I mean, certainly, certainly the, 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 the open source community have got the UI design, they've, they've, they've got the, the coding expertise, that's where a lot of the innovation comes from, because companies keep hiring people from that kind of space. But I, I do, I'm becoming increasingly convinced the money that talks is the money that buys up all the display ads and buys up all the advertising campaigns in the traditional media and throws all of that exposure to their services at us and drowns out the, the, the free and open source side of things, which left to its own devices would, would, would kind of just germinate and, and, and start to push through at its own speed, at its own pace, uh, on, on merit. But if you watch it TV doesn't. Now, if you watch TV now, half of the adverts and the ad breaks are for websites. It's really yeah. Weird. So I I don't know. It's it's not that disintermediating space, and that's that's a little bit sad. I don't but know. But I don't I, think I, I, I don't think the battle's lost. But if we're not careful, um, we're just going to sleepwalk into into the same control that the big brands had all the way through the 60s, 70s, 80s, 
90s. So here's another way of looking at it, which I kind of come around to um, by the end of the book, which is we're focusing now, as we're talking, you and I, about mass adoption. And we're saying we won't have won until everyone's running Linux. Ah, that's, that's, so, that's, not, the one, that's not the thing I'm going to say. <laughs> oh, no. I'm far too savvy to make a sweeping statement that way. Sure, sure. But, I mean, we, we are, in a sense, talking about mass adoption, you know, yeah. Whether it's like, oh, people, why don't people, why do, why do people use Twitter not identical? Why do people use Facebook not diaspora? Blah blah blah. But the thing that I come around to in the book um, is that maybe so long as a section, maybe call them a vanguard or whatever you want to call them, of the community, like the community at Chaos, or like the community that you know contribute and 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 to floss projects uh, more generally so long as they are still able to function able to exist and create and innovate as you say whether that's innovation in terms of building software or innovation in terms of journalism with wikileaks and and how they've changed um that whole scene so quickly maybe that's okay maybe we just need you know the 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 open community, the hacker community, to act as a kind of stalking horse to continue to provide alternatives, even if those alternatives aren't taken up by everyone. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, it's still the case that in Egypt they were using things like Facebook and Twitter. They weren't, you know, but they were probably also using other technologies that we don't hear about, like Tor and, you know, things like that. Mm. And I know that some hackers in, in mainland Europe set up some, some some kind of connectivity. I don't quite understand how, but for people in Egypt, when um, when they were, when they were, I think they were using fax machines. I, don't, I just really don't understand. I should look mm. into it, actually. But I think there was some contribution that was made by the kind of outside tech. So maybe, maybe what I'm trying to say is maybe it's okay if there's just just a small bunch of us that are still, you know, keep it, keeping it real, as it were, so that we can either provide technology when it's needed, provide a stalking horse kind of innovation type thing, or just burst onto the scene. I mean, when I set out to write this book, I really thought I was writing a kind of eulogy, as it were, a, a cultural anthropology of a dying culture. I was that pessimistic about web culture and hacker culture and its future in the commercial internet. But of course, I hadn't figured on WikiLeaks. And from the very beginning, their story kind of trespassed on mine, and they started to install a, a bit of hope back in me, which was great, actually. It was, it was a great personal journey to write this book, because I'm a lot happier now than I was when I started writing it, and a lot more hope. Mm, well, that's good. I, yeah, yeah I, I, I think there'll, there'll always be that, that underbelly, the, 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 the outsiders who, who, whose intent is to try and keep the rest of us honest and keep looking for alternative ways of doing it. I'm... I'm just slightly pessimistic as to whether their voices will ever be loud enough to to really make a difference because as as we've said all of those big corporate interests are just shouting so much louder than everyone else but um I take your point and I I I did pick up some of Rop's words of wisdom from from near the end of the book and and I liked them because they <laughs> because they echo so much of 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 what I say and, and and well think and occasionally say um where he says i think most of what we were fighting still today in the world is incompetence which says a lot to me because i yeah. see it the time um most of what we're fighting is stupidity and maybe a little bit of opportunism um opportunism i think he's i think he's doing most most of the planet a disservice i think most of what we're fighting is stupidity and a lot of opportunism <laughs> Right. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I. I. I mean, 
that's a, that's a big topic. But um, I suppose there's always that little bit of the hacker that enjoys looking down on people. So maybe that's why he did a team better play over opportunism, for sure, for sure. The other the other thing that that he says near near the end, talking about the Chaos Computer Club, um, not setting out to cause chaos, saying that maybe a lot of our collective work has actually prevented chaos by pointing out that maybe we should lay some decent virtual foundations before we build any more virtual skyscrapers. Please tell me there's an illustration to go with that quote. <laughs> I wish there was. There should be, shouldn't there? Yeah, no. I mean, I use the kind of architectural metaphor as well quite a lot. I, I mentioned that, that Rock read the book before he wrote that speech. Maybe he nicked it off me. Actually, I should, I should, I should, I should call, I should call him out on that. No, um, you, you know the famous phrase, "architecture is politics." Mm. But I, I just don't think that a lot of people understand security hacks. That when they're doing things like breaking GSM, for example, what they think they're doing and what they, what you know, the, the frame in which they're doing it anyway, publicly, is as the sort of vigilante building inspectors of the architecture on which we build our digital life. You know, if GSM isn't isn't secure, we need to know about it. I mean, this is this this happened maybe a year before the phone hacking scandal really went nuclear. Yeah, you know, I, I think people have an interest in in their telecommunications being secure, and if GSM isn't secure, I think that people should be told. And in a sense, the framework that's built up around hacking for, for doing that, keeping track of corporations who have no interest in disclosing security vulnerabilities themselves, is a very good one. But I don't think it's very well understood by the world at large that these kind of security hackers working for the public good, the white hat hackers working for the public good. I mean, I and, and they're doing a really tough job. I was just reading a story in the newspaper today about a Dutch journalist who had been who had been uh, publicising the work that a group of hackers had done around the uh, ship that runs the MyFair travel. It's like the Oyster card, but in the Netherlands, the kind mm-hmm. of contactless payment uh, system for, for the travel thing there, which you could basically hack and which you could hack to credit yourself way more money than you had on the actual card. And so he had been out there talking about how unsecure this chip was. And now the the manufacturers of this chip have lodged a criminal complaint with the Dutch public prosecutor against this journalist for even talking about the flaws in their product. So that's very scary. And I think there needs to be a better public understanding about the public service people do in exposing security flaws. Because, I mean... You get to maybe places like anonymous hacking. Was it maybe that's taking it a little too far? But if Sony aren't storing their customer details securely, then it is right that that is exposed in some way. Because I mean, for a start, the amount of sweat they put into making their products secure through DRM, and then the absolute hypocrisy of not securing their customers' um, detail is outrageous. But also, you know, we have laws in this country that say they should be securing their customer details, so they need to be exposed if 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 that's not what's happening. And what chance is there that we will have any any problem? privacy or security guaranteed us in the future because at the moment the only the only truly hack proof telecommunications device appears to be the blackberry which has um, communication uh, communications encryption built in at source and just about everything else has the opportunities for um, cracking or, or, or backdoors to be um, put into it. And I'm sure the, uh, the BlackBerry itself is only a, a matter of time before somebody hooks one up to a supercomputer and just cracks it by brute force. Are we ever going to be in that techno-utopia where privacy and security can be guaranteed? Well, I think we have to... 
I mean, I don't know. Is that the techno utopia that we're looking for, where privacy and security are guaranteed? Because don't forget that privacy is a contingent right, and this is what's so hard about technology and law. So in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, there are some rights which are absolute, and I'm going to say the right to life is one of them, but I'm not sure now in the science. But but anyway, privacy is a right that is, you know, contingent on, well, not contingent, but it's qualified, sorry. So you shall have the right to privacy unless there is a good national security reason for you not to have the right to privacy. And that's how a functioning society kind of works. It's actually the same with free expression and hate speech, at least in the European concept of of human rights law. And technology can't really deal with that. You either have a back door or you don't. And human nature being what it is, the security services are likely to abuse whatever powers, technical powers we give them to monitor people in situations of grave national security. Do you you follow me here? Mm -hmm. So it's it's quite tough. And, And BlackBerry really because yes they've got end-to-end encrypted technologies but they still have an obligation to make communications traffic data available to the security services in particular circumstances and I think if they're storing messages there may be some powers under Ripper for them at least to share the content uh, content of those messages with the security services even if that evidence can't then be made available in court because intercept evidence at the moment in this country isn't routinely allowed in court. In fact, I don't think it's permitted to be used in court, which is interesting. Mm. I think we're going to see a lot of um, really interesting legal questions pop up around BlackBerry on the basis of the fact that the BBM system was used, allegedly, by a lot of these people who are running Rampage over the country now, these young people, these young rioters. And that's going to be really interesting. Where, I mean, so it's, 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 it's in a sense, it's, no one really has an answer to this question to this question yet about what privacy means in the digital age. There are plenty of people theorizing about things like uh, contextual privacy. So you should expect your data to be safe in particular contexts, if it's disclosed in particular contexts, but not if it's disclosed in other contexts. But how you then implement that at a technical layer, I mean, uh, it's just anyone's guess. I don't I don't see people um, having uh, very great solutions to that anymore. There are things like vendor relationship management which now we're getting into the more privacy from corporations area of things where instead of having loads of companies having you know one company having a customer relationship management system that manages all their customers data all the customers have a vendor relationship management system installed which manages the data that they disclose to others and and you see this also in Eben Moglen's um uh, concept of the freedom box. I don't know if you caught that lecture that he gave in January to the Internet Society, but he talked about going back to having uh, your server in your house, under your control, so that you know if the police are knocking on your door, and having that then being a kind of data hub about you, containing all of your traffic data, all of your personal details, which you then have control over physically, and you can also have control over technically as well, through things like selective disclosure to whatever parties you want to go and do business with. So there are ideas like this which are interesting, and are out there. It's beyond my pay grade to really answer the question about <laughs> whether we'll have it. No one has a good answer to this yet. No, I, I, I read a lot about privacy online, and I, I people are flummoxed. Um, but I, don't also, I also don't think the transparent society people have got it right and actually there's an interesting disconnect in the open community around this because open source is good right open data is good I sit on the board of the open knowledge foundation and I believe that open knowledge is good but when it comes to say my health records 
I don't view that as public data, regardless of, you know, how much good it could do if all of the records about all of our conditions, you know, whatever horrible health uh, conditions we're kind of harboring and don't want to tell anyone about, if all of that was disclosed, yeah, maybe medical research would advance a lot, but there would be a significant downside um, unless society was to change radically. And um, and so, yeah, I think there's even uh, scope for fishers within our own community around this subject. I, I, that, that sounds to me like the, the, the first trailer for uh, volume two of your book <laughs> in uh, how, however long it takes you to, to come up with that. Yeah, I don't want to write about privacy. It's too confusing, but maybe <laughs> it should be. I really, my next book I really want to write is about intellectual property and the way that, not the kind of stuff that we all know about, you know, about how great it is when, you know, you give up a little bit of your intellectual property rights, say, or you use the copyright system to, like, hack copy left and then make these amazing you know new paradigms of organizational structure that is floss that is wikipedia that is creative commons not so much that which we all know about them which is you know i've done to death anyway but more the way that ip has been used as a tool um, at the highest levels of government at places like the world trade organization to shore up economic futures for the West and the kind of icky way that Hollywood and uh, the music industry and all the people that we look to for kind of cultural inspiration have have been complicit in that. So I want to look at IP lobbying. I want to look at the way that lobbying and that strong IP legislation creates really crazy situations in places like South Africa where librarians cannot actually archive the recordings of Nelson Mandela making his speech when he's freed from prison because it's against copyright law for them to preserve that recording uh, right over to why India has better, mo- better mobile phone models than, than the UK because of where patents get registered and, and open up that world hopefully in a similar way as I have done with Beth into cyberspace to a lay reader to people who aren't copyright and IP geeks because it, 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 it continues to fascinate me and I think information is so core to the human condition that we really should know more about how we govern it. And, and in the post-industrial age, if that's what we're in now, information is everything. Yeah, sure, sure, absolutely, absolutely. It's interesting how early the US kind of grokked that. I mean, in the 1970s, they were already starting to devise trade laws that made them the knowledge providers and the, the, East, the East the kind of manufacturers and how that played out. And actually, a lot of the, the crazy rhetoric around piracy is the kind of shrill, it comes from that quarter, you know, because it didn't work, basically. They're pirating everything in the East. Yeah, I, I think our friends in America learned very early from the two Thomases, Thomas Edison and Thomas Watson, who patented absolutely everything they could get their hands on, whether or not they had, in fact, invented it themselves. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, the, it's the, the lessons of the industrial age haven't been, been lost on them. So, but it um, didn't do Edison any good, did it? Because he patented the um, projector. He patented the moving image, something about the moving image. I don't know which bit. And then Hollywood just buggered off to the other side of the, of the country and sort of arose as this pirate nation and made films, despite yeah, his patent. Yeah, but the, the, the Hollywood crew were the, uh, were the underbelly and the radical innovators that, that cleared off. But um, look, look at them now. They're the ones doing all the copyright lobbying. I know. How, read, how, um, how the mighty how the mighty fall off the off, off their, their pedestal, moral pedestal yeah. as soon as as soon as commercial interests pop up and somebody says you do know how much money you're losing through this, don't you? <laughs> 
But I am course, I am just an old cynic. Of, of no, of course, but then look to Google. Maybe that's what happens next. Google are pushing the um, pushing the boundaries of copyright law and have done since the very beginning of their existence as a corporation. As soon as they have enough market power, I don't expect them to continue to have such an open viewpoint, but we'll see. Well, perhaps perhaps we're safe as long as Larry and Sergey are in charge. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and and Google Books is still worth worthwhile as a project as long as the the search results bring in plenty of ad revenue if 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 another another eric schmidt comes along and takes over from them who knows where it's going to go such is the nature of corporations especially publicly traded ones i mean we all think they're great now because they pulled out of china but that was a business decision and when they went after after much much deliberation it, it took them about six months longer to pull out than it should have done and there are those who are still saying they shouldn't have been there in the first place but they had to go in there. It's a massive market and they're a publicly traded corporation. They would actually be like in derelict of their duties to their shareholders. Well, that's that's the problem with corporations. They can they can stamp do no evil on as much stationery as they like, but a corporate entity has no morality. It's an amoral thing. In fact, there's been plenty of books written to say that it's a psychopathic ent- uh, entity, which I find fascinating. But uh, and and then just imagine that they're the people who are who are maintaining and curating most of the what we imagine to be the public space that we call the internet. You know, on Facebook, mm. on Blogger, on YouTube, on Flickr. Um, these are the entities that are governing our freedoms now. It's scary. Yeah, I think Schmidt and Zuckerberg have both made their statements about there is no privacy anymore, get over it, and only backed off in the face of huge public outcry, but very clear where the the corporates are putting their faith. They, They have the keys... I'm I'm nearly in, in danger of uh, regurgitating half of Jeff Jarvis's uh, essays from from another network, so I'll back well, up. Well, we're, we're giving them the keys. This is the amazing <laughs> thing. We're giving them the keys for, for convenience and for fun and to promote ourselves. I mm. mean, that's what's so fabulous. We're giving them the information every day. And we're calling mm. people in countries and repressive regimes that are giving them the information. We're calling them revolutionaries and we're cheering them on. And it's, it's, it's a frightening situation, for sure. Mm. Sure. So are we are we sleepwalking our, our way into a, a, a caged society? Well, I don't know about a caged society. I mean, the information commissioner of this country said in 2006 or five that we were sleepwalking into a surveillance society, and and in 2006 that we'd woken up in one. So yeah, we're here. It's mm. it, it's here. But again, I don't know. I don't know where that leaves us. <laughs> and also, I mean, we let's let's have a look how um, CCDV affects you know whether cctv actually turns out to be useful for these riots because it's been a long long understood uh, truth in the security community that cctv is rubbish at solving crimes it mm. kind of i think what it does is it moves criminality elsewhere and it's good in car parks but beyond that it, it it's rubbish so- it's it's a it's a sop isn't it to reassure people call it surveillance uh, security theater i mean it's yeah. exactly the same that happens at airports and it's it's just um it's just it, it's nosy and bossy and rude and upsetting mm. it's not just not british and oh, oh let's let's not get into what's 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 british and what isn't well you could say that that writing in the streets isn't british but um <laughs> well, that's we haven't true, actually. We haven't had any of that since so oh, when when did we last have a conservative government <laughs> I'm feeling very I'm feeling very French at the moment. It's feeling very French, very good. Yes. Let's 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 do let's more continue. let's do let's more rising up. Crash, na- crash national stuff. <laughs> 
let's man the barricades and set fire to some set fire to some lorries or something. <laughs> the cynical part of me just knows that whatever knee-jerk reactions we get out of the current riot situation is going to be the wrong reaction in the wrong direction. Well, let's let's let's, let's <laughs> that kind of cynicism at bay before we put off all the listeners and they <laughs> they go back to looking at pictures of cats. Knee-jerk reactions are never good. A bit more bit more wisdom. Virtual foundations and virtual skyscrapers required. Before we before we give away the entire contents of the book yeah. <laughs> and and leave nobody with any reason to, to go and go and read it. Um, Gosh, we haven't talked about Stuart Brand and Acid and Easy Rider and Tom No. And, well yeah, that, there's loads. There's all, loads all of the early yeah, yeah, all of the early stuff of I mean we, we kind of jumped in uh, in in media res. We were kind of halfway in to the story and there's the, the whole the whole front half of the book about how we got here and the sixties counterculture. Well uh, we don't we don't have to talk about that now. People can no. people can read the book. They can read the book. Um, and John Perry Barlow, who's a who's a fantastic hero of modern culture and deserves to be hailed as such. So all of that's in, in the book as well. That's Barefoot into Cyberspace, colon, get it right this time, Adventures in Search of Techno-Utopia yep. by Becky Hogg. Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you for having me. Look forward to uh, you writing the sequel in a in a couple of years' time, and you can come and come and beat me up with it about how wrong and pessimistic I was. <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. Thanks. Bye. Barefoot into cyberspace: Adventures in Search of Techno Utopia is available as a hardback and as a Kindle ebook. <laughs> With more interviews coming up on the Full Circle podcast very soon. For now, I'm Robin Catling. Thank you, and goodbye. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.